Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on the Fired Up podcast here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and each week I host as we take a look at the mechanics of politics here in the United States. So we've got a very, very interesting show uh, for you today. Those of you that have been following our program uh, over the two plus years and actually this fall, we will cross uh, the threshold of our third year uh, bringing you the Fired Up show, either in its radio form as it started or in a podcast as we do now. Uh, But as you know, what we do is we look at what's going on in the political realm and try and bring you uh, the information in the background as to uh, the where, the why, and the how of the things that make our political world tick. And uh, we're going to cover and go into some things that fall into a theme we seem to hit here frequently on the Fired Up podcast. And that is the games that our politicians seem to play. But before that, as always, we want to recap uh, where we are with regard to our COVID battle here in the United States. Uh, We have 91.3 million cases reported. Uh, 1,029,000 people have died from the disease. And we have crossed over 600 million people who have been vaccinated, either with the first dose or with a full uh, range of doses. Uh, so, you know, we continue that struggle. Um, the BA5 subvariant still seems to be growing in strength here in the U.S. So, you know, some areas are seeing us get back to our mask and social distancing protocols. And of course, you want to make sure that you're getting vaccinated or boosted or both. So let's make sure we're doing what we need to do to keep ourselves, our community and our country safe. And uh, want to also include um, a, a bit of sad news uh, for those of you like me who are fans of the Star Trek franchise uh, going back all the way into uh, the 60s and 70s with the original series. Uh, a lot of us are saddened by the fact that Nichelle Nichols, uh, the actress who portrayed Lieutenant Uhura in the original series uh, has died over the weekend from natural causes at the age of 89. Uh, Her son reported it on her Facebook page uh, that she uh, died peacefully and we are saddened by her loss uh, but inspired nonetheless by the groundbreaking work that she did and the role that she played Uh, showing an African-American female in a position of command and authority uh, on a a starship in the future, uh, as well as uh, a a first that is credited to her and to uh, her co-star William Shatner uh, for having the first interracial kiss uh, portrayed on national television here in the United States. So we... We are are saddened by her loss, but we are richer for having seen her body of work uh, in the Star Trek series over the years. So just wanted to pass that along as well uh, for those of you out there like me who are longtime Star Trek fans. All right. Getting back to the reality here in 2022 uh, in the United States, uh, got some interesting things to talk about today. First off, I want to lead in with uh, some news that broke on uh, the 29th uh, by the Tampa Bay Times uh, in Florida. And this was a report of FBI were investigating Russian interference possibly linked to St. Petersburg Uhuru uh, movement. And uh, the article that came out of the Tampa Bay Times Uh, written by uh, Dan Sullivan, Mary Claire, and Natalie Weber, uh, talks about a federal law enforcement officials uh, who appear to be investigating members of the Uhuru movement in St. Petersburg for alleged connections to a Russian government official uh, 
who prosecutors say directed U.S. political groups in a campaign to sow division, spread pro-Russian propaganda, and interfere in U.S. elections. Uh, Federal agents executed search warrants on Friday morning at multiple locations, including the main Uhuru location uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, The searches, according to the article, appear to be related to an indictment that was unsealed on Friday against a Russian national who's accused of working with the Russian government and intelligence services in efforts to interfere in U.S. politics. Alexander Viktorovich Ionov, who lives in Moscow, sorry for mangling that name like that, uh, orchestrated on behalf of the Russian government a years-long, quote, foreign malign influence campaign against the U.S., close quote, Uh, The Department of Justice uh, noted that in a news release on Friday. He worked with American political groups to inflame political discord and spread disinformation, prosecutors said. The indictment refers to a group in St. Petersburg as, quote, U.S. Political Group 1, though it does not name the Uhurus specifically. Uh, St. Petersburg police confirmed Friday morning that federal agents served a warrant at the Uhuru House. Uh, We can have relationships uh, with whomever we want to make this revolution possible, said uh, Aretha Akile Kainyan, later adding, we are in support of Russia. So, and that was uh, released by Uhuru, who had their own news conference after the law enforcement press briefing on the indictment. Omali Yeshitela, a longtime leader of the St. Petersburg Uhuru movement, said he and his wife were handcuffed and taken out of the home in St. Uh, in St. Louis by agents showing guns Friday morning. So multiple locations being reported in uh, this raid by federal officials. Uh, Yeshitela, who still owns property in St. Petersburg, has denied taking money from the Russians, though he acknowledged he had visited Russia. The Uhuru movement falls under the African People's Socialist Party, which Yeshitela formed. Uh, They have accused us of taking money from Russia, he said in a news conference Friday afternoon. We've never taken money from the Russian government, but I'm not saying that because I'm morally opposed from taking money from Russians or anyone else who wants to support the struggles for black people. He said the U.S. government was using his group as a pawn in its propaganda war against Russia. And he's further quoted as saying, don't tell us that we can't have friends that you don't like, he said. Uh, The the idea here, they are targeting that the Russians were targeting U.S. political groups. uh, And Ionov is the founder of the anti-globalization movement of Russia, an organization funded by the Russian government. He used the organization to target political groups in the U.S. and other countries, including Ukraine, Spain, the U.K., and Ireland. The organization reached out to group leaders and paid for them to attend conferences in Russia, according to the indictment. The purpose of the conferences was to encourage the participating groups to advocate for separating from their home countries, the indictment states. Back in May of 2015, Ayana paid for the leader of the St. Petersburg group to travel to Russia to discuss future political cooperation, according to the indictment. For the next seven years, Ayana exercised direction and control over senior members of the St. Petersburg group. He used their leaders to foster discord in the U.S., spreading pro-Russia sentiments under the guise of domestic political organization, prosecutors said. Ionov and others, acting at his direction, engaged in agitprop, or agitation and propaganda, the indictment states. They would write and send articles featuring pro-Russia material to the St. Petersburg group, instructing them to publish them in their media outlets. He and members of the group, uh, I'm sorry, he had members of the group provide him detailed information about their activities. He then compiled the information the groups gave him into reports that he would then give to Russian Federal Security Service officers and other Russian government officials, the indictment states. 
In 2016, INF funded a four-city protest tour. The tour supported a petition on crime and genocide against African people in the United States, which Ayanov directed the group to submit to the United Nations, prosecutors said. He also interfered in local elections in 2017 and 2019. Uh, he monitored and supported two of the St. Peter, Petersburg group members in political campaigns, the government said. So, you know, the, the article goes on to detail uh, some of these uh, activities, uh, including the people that he backed who were both Uhuru uh, backed and activists and uh, members who are running for political office. Now, according to the article, uh, most of these candidates were unsuccessful in their attempts to be elected to office. But the, the key takeaway here is to understand that uh, various groups in our country uh, have been and likely continue to be uh, working under the influence of external forces. I mean, that sits at the heart of the controversy over the 2016 presidential election, and it, it looks like much of this is sort of parallel to what's been going on with that investigation with Russian involvement in the presidential election. Uh, it shows that, you know, that involvement wasn't just at the national level, but that it travels down ticket down to the local mayoral and you know state rep governors races and so forth so just you know a, another indication that the political system here in the United States uh, is not immune from external influences uh, and that we need to make sure that when we see stories or we hear stories about uh, conditions and, and issues being reported by groups within this country that, like everything else, we need to dig deeper, uh, get to the backstory, look at the sourcing, and make sure that what we are hearing is an accurate story. So I, I found this uh, article interesting uh, and thought-provoking, and you know, if, if you line this up against other events that have happened in the timeline you know, over the last uh, you know, 15 years or so, you begin to see these correlations where, you know, external influences uh, may be generating some of the, the media stories that we're seeing. And, you know, as a result, we need to be uh, diligent. We need to be observant. We need to be educated in how we accept these stories that are reported to us. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep you posted on the progress of this and any new developments that come out of it. We will bring them to you. So why, why do I bring this story uh, to the show? Uh, I bring it to illustrate the point uh, that one of the, the fundamental themes of this show is to shine a light on the political games being played in this country. And I bring this story around so that you can have an understanding that it isn't always, you know, just the Democrats or just the Republicans that are playing these games. Sometimes our political system uh, is being played by external actors that are, you know, working to to other purposes uh, of their own with regard to politics here in the U.S., uh, whether it's to influence an election um, at the national level, the state level, or the local level, uh, we need to be on guard for you know when it seems like a uh, a situation or a story is just too convenient, or when there seem to be so many uh, issues and concerns going on that it can be hard to keep them straight. You know we have. Uh, multiple political stories happening here in this country. And it's entirely possible that some of them are being uh, influenced and generated from outside our borders and are you know, designed to create the distraction, the, uh, the competition, so to speak, or you know, uh, other elements that just keep us you know, politically off balance. 
So it, it's important that when we hear of stories, as we often say here on this show, that we dig you know deeper, we dig wider, and try and find you know multiple sources uh, to verify the the facts that we're being told, so that we know we're getting the genuine facts. So. We'll keep an eye on this um, as well as we always do in terms of bringing you the information on uh, political stories that may not be getting uh, as wide a coverage as maybe they need to. So we will we'll let you know what's going on. So as I've said, you know, we've been doing this show uh, between the radio version and the podcast version now for uh, almost 140 episodes. And I'm very proud of that, by the way. Um, one of the, the premises of this show is that we look at and bring to you information about the games that are being played and the, the strategies and the tactics that the political parties here in the U.S. are employing to maintain their power and, you know, follow you know whatever guidance they're receiving from whoever they're listening to because it doesn't seem at times that they are listening to us at all and you know you need look no further than the uh the supreme court decision to overturn roe and other uh, things that have transpired that are counter to the overwhelming percentage of the american people not just one party or the other but the American people's desires that seem to be routinely ignored by our elected political officials. In fact, um, it was, I believe, the third show that I recorded uh, in this uh, series where we talked about uh, strategies versus tactics. And, you know, strategies being the plan to accomplish a goal and the tactics are the steps that are taken in order to bring that goal to fruition. Well, another article that came across my uh, radar this past week uh, came from um, Salon Magazine, or their online version. And the, the article is titled, GOP Officials Refuse to Certify Primaries. And then it says, this is how Republicans are planning to steal elections. So we've just gotten through the, you know, the, the run up to the 2020 campaign where uh, the Republicans were accusing the Democrats of doing so many different things to steal elections, to, quote, rig the system, close quote. Now, apparently, uh, according to this article, the Republicans are uh, stepping fully into that role themselves. Uh, this article came out on the 30th of July. And it was uh, written by uh, Igor Derish, deputy politics editor for Salon. And the article talks about Republican election officials in at least three states have refused to certify primary votes in a sign of things to come amid the party's baseless election fraud crusade. Uh, Numerous allies of former President Donald Trump have echoed his lies about voter fraud in um, rather on the campaign trail. Trump-backed Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Nevada U.S. Senate candidate Adam Laxalt both claimed evidence of, quote, election stealing, close quote, before any votes were cast. Colorado Secretary of State candidate Tina Peters has twice demanded recounts of her Republican primary race after losing by double digits. Nevada gubernatorial candidate Joey Gilbert filed a lawsuit alleging that his GOP primary loss was a, quote, mathematical impossibility, close quote, even after a recount he requested confirmed the results of the election. While candidates are free to challenge the results, as we know, of their elections under various state guidelines, Trump-allied election officials pose a more insidious threat. Echoing the same false narratives as Trump and his endorsed candidates, county officials in New Mexico, Nevada, and Pennsylvania have tried to circumvent state laws and refuse to sign off on primary results. 
Republican commissioner, I'm sorry, Republican commissioners in Otero County, New Mexico last month refused to certify primary results in their GOP-dominated jurisdiction, citing unspecified concerns about Dominion voting machines. These apparently stem from Trump Works' crusade to stoke baseless allegations that the machines had, quote, flipped votes from Trump to Joe Biden. The Otero County commissioners ultimately relented and certified the votes amid concerns that they could go to jail after state officials took them to court. Uh, The GOP is trying to throw out 2022 primary votes in a test drive of Trump World 2024 plot. Republican commissioners in rural Esmeralda County, Nevada, likewise refused to certify the 317 votes cast in the county last month, citing unspecified concerns about the election from residents. County officials ultimately relented after spending more than seven hours counting the 317 ballots by hand. Three Republican-led counties here in my home state of Pennsylvania, Berks, Fayette, and Lancaster, have refused to count all valid votes from the May 17th primary election for Senate, Congress, Governor, and the state legislature for weeks over opposition to the state's rules regarding undated mail-in ballots. Uh, Stepping out of the article for a second here for an explainer, uh, when you vote by mail, uh, you uh, sign your ballot and date your ballot, Uh, then you sign your uh, statement of, of verification that you are who you say you are and then you also sign and date the exterior of the mailer that you put your ballot in to uh, either put it in the drop box or mail it in so officials coming back in the article officials in all three counties informed the state last month that they would not count mail-in votes that had not been properly dated according to a report from the associated press Pennsylvania mail ballots instruct voters to write a date next to their signature on the outside of mail-in return envelopes, although these dates do not determine whether voters are eligible or if votes were cast on time. A federal appeals court ruled in May that undated mail-in ballots must be counted, ruling that the dates are, quote, immaterial. The U.S. Supreme Court, even with three Trump-appointed justices allowed the ruling to stand last month. A state court similarly ruled that the Republican Senate primary that undated ballots should be counted. The Pennsylvania Department of State earlier this month sued the three counties asking a state court to order them to include all valid ballots even if the voter failed to write a date on the declaration printed on the ballot's return envelope. The department said in the lawsuit that the handwritten date is not necessary for any purpose, does not remedy any mischief, and does not advance any other objective, and that allowing just three county boards to exclude votes that all other county boards have included in their return creates impermissible discrepancies in the administration of the Pennsylvania 2022 primary election. So, you know, as as I said at the lead in, you know, the Republicans spent a lot of uh, energy and bandwidth uh, talking about how the Democrats were stealing the election and the voting irregularities and the problems with mail-in ballots. Now, apparently, the Republicans are going to play the game themselves and, uh, you know, by refusing to accept or certify uh, ballots that do not have the, the date on the exterior of the envelope disenfranchise uh, numbers of voters in their jurisdictions. According to Lancaster County officials who told the Philadelphia Inquirer, the county had properly certified its results in accordance with state law and court orders. The Commonwealth's, and quote, the Commonwealth's demand is contrary to the law and any or any existing court order, the county said, the county will vigorously defend its position to follow the law to ensure the integrity of elections in Lancaster County. Fayette County officials argued no court filing 
that the state did not have the authority to force it to count at the undated ballots, according to the Associated Press, adding that the state had missed a deadline to appeal a county board decision. The county also cited ongoing litigation before the Supreme Court, which has yet to rule on the merits of the appellate court ruling. It, you know, it's unclear which way the Supreme Court may rule. Only Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch dissented in an earlier emergency order, arguing that the lower court's ruling was very likely wrong. The American Civil Liberties Union defended the appellate court ruling after, I'm sorry, after Alito's dissent. And in their quote, every vote matters and every valid vote should be counted. Voters may not be disenfranchised for a minor paperwork error like this one, ACLU attorney Ari Savitsky said in a statement. The Third Circuit was correct in unanimously re reaching that conclusion. We are thrilled for those voters that their ballots can finally now be counted consistent with the requirements of federal law. The dates on the absentee ballots, uh, by way of explainer, neither help determine whether a voter is eligible nor whether the ballot was cast by the deadline. Matthew Wealth, the director of the Elections Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center, said in a statement, Quote, exploiting inconsequential errors or omissions to invalidate otherwise eligible ballots received by the deadline is poor policy and bad for democracy, he said. The fact that the state already accepts ballots with incorrect or invalid dates only demonstrates how inconsequential this requirement is to determine the voters and the ballots eligibility. And according to Democratic election lawyer Mark Elias, he warned that the situation in Pennsylvania is far more disturbing than those we have seen elsewhere. The three counties have a combined population of over one million people, he noted, and the issue causing the counties to contest the ballots has been fully litigated in both federal and state courts. Uh, most importantly, these counties did not refuse to submit any election results at all. Worse, they submitted results that intentionally exclude lawful votes, he said, adding that this is how Republicans are planning to steal elections in the future. Uh, Nonpartisan election law experts agreed that the trend could cause chaos on a larger scale. Had this unfolded, on, on this kind of timeline in 2020, it really could have created problems because there would have been questions about whether the state could have actually named a slate of electors. And this is from Robert Yablon, a law professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, uh, and he told the Times, you could imagine there being disputed slates of electors that were sent to Congress, and that could have been a big mess. Or, or maybe more accurately, a bigger mess than, than what ended up transpiring. So, the, as I've said, the games are afoot. They are being played. Um, you know, Republicans were all over the Democrats about election fraud and integrity issues and lawsuits and you know, the, the voting machines flipping votes and so forth. Now it seems like we're looking forward to uh, elections, whether it's the upcoming midterms in, you know, a little less than five months or the 2024 general election uh, where the Republicans are actually, uh, instead of complaining that the game is rigged, it appears, you know, from this article and from other uh, sources that the Republicans are going to rig the game. So, you know, we need to, as always, make sure that, you know, our voter registrations are, are current and up to date, that we are getting, you know, everybody available who is eligible to vote registered and to the polls, and that we stay on top of our uh, state elected officials to make sure that they are not playing games with our ballots. So we will keep you posted as always. And we'll be following up on this story as more developments arrive. So let's take our break here. Uh, we'll listen to PSA, and then we'll come back on the other side 
with more stories here on the Fired Up podcast from WJMS Media. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was there that you got involved in the sit-ins. You would be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. You got arrested the first time and you felt so free. You felt liberated. You felt like you had crossed over. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! You probably will never believe it, but the boy from Troy as Dr. King used to call you, we become the embodiment of nonviolence in America. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march of voting across Jeff and Pettis Bridge in Selma. I'm marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We're marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. Troopers here advance toward the group. you would make it. You would live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you lived in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what? Young John, that some divine providence as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video, 
John. Thank you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. We were sad. But one day, you've been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. And believe as Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and others taught you that we're one people. And it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. That maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came here in different ships. But we're all in the same boat now. John, you understood the words of Dr. King when he said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we will perish as fools. Rest in peace, Representative John Lewis, and thank you, and God bless you. And we're back. Thank you for listening to that public service message. Uh, we appreciate it. All right, let's get back into it. Um, this story really uh, kind of ticked off a lot of people in this country. If you've been watching the news over the last uh, you know, five days or so or week, then you've seen uh, comedian and talk show host John Stewart uh, absolutely tirading over the Republicans and what they did with a bill called the PACT Act. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, so what happened on Wednesday? Uh, 25 Republican senators uh, voted against a bill that would provide uh, needed health care services for veterans who were exposed to uh, illnesses uh, during their service uh, with what are called toxic burn pits. Now, by way of background, in case you don't know, uh, in, in foreign countries, when there is trash or hazardous waste or other things that need to be disposed of, the usual method is basically they throw it into a big pit and set it on fire. Well, these these toxics and and other materials give off you know a toxic smoke that you know soldiers have been breathing. Well, apparently uh, there was a bill proposed called the PACT Act, which is the bill that would have expanded the Department of Veterans Affairs health care to presume veterans whose military service included exposure to burn pits. And, and as I said, these are large trenches dug to burn and dispose of sewage, medical waste, and other trash. Uh, to be victims of exposure to toxic substances and fumes when they present with certain illnesses. The bill would have removed the burden of proof veterans currently need to show in order to receive assistance. And what that means is, uh, up until this point, if you were a veteran and you were exposed to a toxic sub substance, it is on you to prove to the Veterans Administration that your illness is related to uh, circumstances that you encountered while in the service, while deployed. Uh, what this bill would have done was make that a lot less complicated, provide expanded services uh, over an expanded time frame, and also would provide services to those surviving members from, say, the Vietnam era war who were exposed to a defoliant used during that war called Agent Orange. So the, the story is, and this comes from Vox.com, but has been widely covered by the media uh, over the last week, 
Uh, Republicans blocked a bill on Wednesday, and this was posted on July 30th, so it was last Wednesday, that many saw as a bipartisan slam dunk, which aimed to expand certain benefits for veterans due to toxic exposure they experienced while deployed, leaving many, many veterans and their supporters shocked. So both houses of Congress had previously passed the bill with the Senate voting 84-14 in June in favor, but the bill was forced into another vote after administrative issues were found in its text. After the changes were made, it was expected to breeze back through Congress and be signed into law by President Biden. However, what transpired was that 25 Republican senators flipped their vote and blocked the bill on Wednesday. So, to, to give you a little backgrounder on this, um, the, the bill was uh, brought through the House and passed by, you know, an, an overwhelming margin, like 324 to something, and came to the Senate and likewise passed with 84 bipartisan votes. Now, historically, one thing that Democrats and Republicans uh, seem to have, you know, a, a pattern of coming together on in a bipartisan fashion were things related to our veterans. You know, it, it, is, it is just this is what needs to be done for our heroes who are deployed overseas and are fighting on behalf of our country. Uh, Republicans have, you know, campaigned and, and surrounded themselves in the flag and surrounded themselves with veterans for years, talking about how much they support veterans. Well, the, the situation is this bill came before them. Initially, they passed it with 84 votes, and uh, it, it was reviewed and had to go back to the House to correct some language issues, nothing substantive with the bill, no elements of the dollars or the allocations or any of that was changed. It was merely going back for some wordsmithing to to polish the, the bill up to make it ready to become law. So what happened? Well, so the, the bill came back from the House. It had passed both the House and the Senate and was going through its review and needed to have some language changed uh, in the wording of, you know, uh, sections of the bill not related to the actual function of the bill. What happened was when those changes were made and it came back, 25 additional senators on top of the 14 who originally opposed it flipped their vote from in favor to not in favor, thereby holding the bill up under the filibuster rule uh, and allowing it not to pass. pass. So you know, it, it was nothing, as I said, nothing related to the substance of the bill. It was merely some language had to be ironed out to, um, to, to make the bill presentable as a law under, under the, the guidelines. All right. So, you know, as it says in the article, um, Many supporters of the bill, uh, including veterans, had come to the Capitol hoping for a celebration following the bill's passing. Instead, they were met with frustration. Uh, on Thursday, uh, the talk show host and comedian uh, John Stewart uh, joined lawmakers such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to forcefully call out Republicans for voting down the bill. Uh, and as I said, if you have not heard John Stewart's um, impassioned would be too gentle a word. He went off on the Republicans, all right, and uh, in, in my opinion, rightly so. The Republicans essentially reneged on their agreement to pass this bill, and they reneged for purely uh, language-related issues, nothing substantive to what the bill was supposed to do. So, according to Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of my home state of Pennsylvania, who led opposition to the bill, he expressed his desire for wanting an uh, amendment focused on budgetary spending. 
And his quote, as he said from the floor of the Senate, there is a mechanism created in this bill. It's a budgetary gimmick that has the intent of making it possible to have a huge explosion in unrelated spending, $400 billion. This budgetary gimmick is so unrelated to the actual budgetary issue that has to do with burn pits that it's not even in the House bill, he said from the floor. Toomey told CNN he wants the funding of the bill to be handled through an annual appropriation process rather than the current mandatory spending structure. Now let's, let's break that out for a second because that's an important feature that this whole dispute revolves around. So Congress handles expenditure of money through uh, a couple of different mechanisms. One is a mandatory spending. That is, they define amount of money and they say it shall be spent in this amount over this many years, so much and so each year and so forth. Or it is done on an appropriations process where the amount of money to be allocated under the purpose is reviewed every year and voted up or voted down or amended depending upon which way the political winds are blowing in that particular year. See where we're going here? So the Republicans want the ability for this to be addressed each year going forward and the bill is expected uh, to run for some 10 years. Now rather than have it be a mandatory allocation of funds, that is when the budget is set so much money is allocated for this PACT Act purpose to the VA to cover those expenses. What the Republicans are trying to do is to make it so that the, the VA has to ask permission to receive the money each year and is, is, it's doled out on a political whim. So here's, here's where the, the rub comes in place. The problem with that the problem with the appropriations process, and, and by the way, much of the items that are funded by the federal government are handled through the appropriations process. They are reviewed annually, and the amounts are you know agreed to, and it's voted up or down as part of overall appropriation packages. So here's where the the piece that makes supporters uh, extremely angry. There is nothing in the rule with regarding to appropriations that presets the amount of money that is to be appropriated. So what does that mean? The bill right now stands to uh, allocate you know four hundred billion dollars. Uh, roughly 280 billion of that is for uh, direct payments for medical care to veterans. Um, and here's the thing: under an appropriations process, the annual amount of that. So again, if we're talking a 10-year window, we're talking you know 2.8 billion, no, 28 billion dollars a year uh, to be allocated. Now we could come back next year and the Republicans can say, well, we're only going to allocate 14 billion this year or, you know, we're going to allocate 4 billion this year. Um, and that's going to shortchange the medical care that the veterans get. So, you know, as we talk about on this show, the games that are being played, here is a poster child example of the games that get played with money that is to be spent on a very good cause. All right. And, you know, historically, veterans have, you know, received much of the monies they've been allocated to. A lot of times, you know, things have gotten caught up in political process. And it's not the first time that the Republicans have thrown, you know, an obstacle or a roadblock against a, a budgetary appropriation for spending for veterans. You only need to look back um, to the uh, fiery debate that went on about spending for uh, first responders medical care after the 9-11 attacks where, you know, uh, police and firefighters and EMS personnel 
who were exposed to the toxic waste at the World Trade Center site and at the, the Pentagon site after the 9-11 attacks uh, literally had to go to court and fight a pitched battle with the government in order to have needed medical care provided to them and paid for. In the meantime, while that battle went on, many first responders actually died from illnesses and injuries they received in responding to the 9-11 emergency uh, before funding was allocated. So we're looking at the potential for a very similar process here. If this is going to go into a long protracted argument back and forth between Democrats and Republicans over how much of this money is going to be spent, when it's, excuse me, when it's going to be spent and, you know, and so forth, people who have been exposed to this toxic waste are going to die before they receive treatment. We saw the same thing over the battle over Agent Orange. So this is not a new scenario. However, you know, this is something that it is high time that our elected officials step up and take care of. So what happened was because of this wordsmithing change, uh, the bill needed to be revoted by both the House and Senate. Now, add into this, during the time between the initial passing of this, this bill, again, where it got you know, 324 plus votes in the House and 84 votes in the Senate, the uh, administration worked out a deal on the CHIPS bill, which is a, a bill in support of American computer chip manufacturers uh, in, in their struggle against China. Added to that is the Democrats are attempting to uh, pass the Inflation Reduction Act, a $369 billion bill to be spent over the next 10 years to address climate change, health care, inflation, and taxes. Uh, that is likely going to go through the reconciliation process. So the Republicans uh, were upset that it looked like the Democrats were going to get a couple of big victories here and decided they were going to take their revenge out on the next available piece of legislation to come down the road, which happened to be the PAC Act. So it, it is, you know, the height of childishness, the height of games playing that find us in the position where we have to argue for the, the veterans who served this country, who were sent uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, by Republican presidents, and you know, came home with these these illnesses um, and, and so forth. Um, and and I, let me give you a little a little background, a little background more on this. So currently, according to this article, seventy percent of all disability claims related to burn pit exposure are denied by the VA due to veterans' inability to prove their illnesses or cancers are linked to being exposed to burn pits. Cancers and other issues that are alleged to be related to burn pits can come years later, as it happened for the person the bill is named after, uh, Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson, who died in 2020 of a rare lung cancer he attributed to smoke exposure during his deployment in Iraq in 2006 and 2007. So over a 14-year period, uh, this, this soldier developed his cancer and succumbed to it. So, you know, what, what the, the, the outrage here is, is that, you know, Republicans who take great, uh, great energy to voice their strong support for our soldiers, for our men and women in uniform who you know, are deployed overseas or serving our country, um, when they come home, they are, you know, tossed aside like so much excess baggage, like so much waste. Uh, it, is, it is at the heart of the, the 
homeless veteran problem we have in this country, the uh, veteran suicide rates that we have in this country. Uh, you know, you, you need only go to websites for, you know, such uh, organizations as uh, Wounded Warrior or, you know, Disabled Veterans of America and so forth, and you can find dozens and dozens of stories of veterans who went and served our country. Remember, there, there isn't a draft. Our military service is all voluntary. People go because they want to serve. And they are promised by our government that they will be taken care of on the back end when they return home. And here we have this scenario where these veterans returned home after doing their duty, you know, and, you know, among that duty, you know, carting garbage off to these burn pits uh, to to burn it and getting sick as a result. And when they come back home and seek you know, assistance from the Veterans Administration, from our government for the illnesses they incurred while serving us overseas, you know, it it, it just is unacceptable. So, again, you know, it, it is just something that we have to get in touch with our elected officials and let them know how displeased we are with this process. Now, for those of you that have listened to this, this show for a long time, you know that I generally do not discuss individuals, uh, political figures, unless they are central to the story. Well, these individuals who I'm about to name are central to this story because these are the 25 Republicans who voted in favor of this bill in June and reneged on it in July. They are as follows. Senators John Barrasso, Marsha Blackburn, Roy Blunt, Mike Braun, Bill Cassidy, John Cornyn, Tom Cotton, Kevin Kramer, Ted Cruz, Joni Ernst, Deb Fisher, Bill Haggerty, Josh Hawley, Cindy Hyde-Smith, Jim Inhofe, Ron Johnson, John Kennedy, Roger Marshall, Mitch McConnell, Rob Portman, Ben Sass, Tim Scott, Rick Scott, Dan Sullivan, and Todd Young. Additionally, Senator Steve Daines and Roger Wicker voted against the bill after not voting uh, on it in June. So these 25 senators have turned their backs on our veterans. That is a, a, a totally unacceptable proposition if you are an American and if you support our military. That is unacceptable. Our veterans put their lives on the line because we asked them to. They volunteered to go. There's no more draft. It's not you've got to go or else. No, you go because you want to serve your country. And this is how we repay that sacrifice on the back end. So the, the call to action for all of us is to reach out to our senators. As I said, Pat Toomey is is my one of my senators here in Pennsylvania, but to reach out to all these senators and let them know that is unacceptable. That is not something that we the people will tolerate. And we need to look at this carefully as we come to the midterms and as we come to the general election in 2024. So that's our call to action. That's what we need to do. We, we need to be about making sure that these senators and that all of our senators and all of our Congress people understand clearly that one of the things that goes above partisanship, above party, that speaks to the core of who we are as Americans is that we support our military and what they do to protect and preserve our country and freedom around the world and at home. So, you know, we need to make sure that the message is loud and clear that this is this is not acceptable and we will hold you accountable for it. And bear in mind that the Senate will be going on recess in about another week or so. So these senators will be back in their home districts. Take that opportunity to go meet with them. And especially out of this list of 25, 
ask them why this bill was not important enough where it needed to be changed. Have them explain themselves to you and make sure you let them know that that is unacceptable, that we support our military, ride or die. So let, let's make sure we make that happen. All right, there's one more thing that I want to preview before we conclude uh, today's episode. And I can't go into details on it. It came across my radar literally just before I sat down to record this podcast. Uh, it, it comes from Business Insider. And what I'm, I'm going to tease you with a little bit of it, but I'm going to go into this in detail on my next podcast. I'm going to dig in, find additional sources, get more details. But here's the, the headline that came out of Business Insider. And again, this was posted to their website on Sunday. Republicans' next big play is to scare the hell out of Washington by rewriting the Constitution. And they're willing to play the long game to win. So understand, uh, you'll, you'll start to hear things about... Uh, an Article 5 uh, committee and you know various things around Article 5 of the Constitution. Article 5 of the Constitution outlines how the Constitution of the United States can be uh, amended or rewritten. Um, there, are, there are two ways to do it. There are the amendment process where an amendment is posed uh, by Congress and goes then to the states and it has to get ratified by two-thirds of the state in order to become an amendment to the Constitution. Well, the Constitution itself can be rewritten in a constitutional convention. However, it requires, again, um, two-thirds of the states to uh, ratify a new constitution but then it must be passed by three quarters of the states or, or 38 states have to uh, have to agree in order for a new constitution to be uh, accepted as law in this country so from what I'm seeing in this article and again I've only seen this one article so I need to do my own diligence but I wanted to give you guys a heads up that this is what's going to be coming uh, in next week's podcast, that the conservative movement uh, isn't done reshaping the Constitution from the ground up. Uh, according to the article, conservatives are now pushing an unprecedented convention to rewrite the U.S. bedrock text uh, since 1788. And so far, 19 GOP states have joined a rapidly growing conservative movement to call a new convention. So, among other things, you know, again, I, I, I don't have much more than just this article to go on, so I, I don't want to get too deep into, you know, whether or not this should be accepted as canon or not. But the, uh, the effort is being led, among others, by former Republican Senator Rick Santorum, uh, and also former presidential candidate. And they are, they are literally talking about convening a constitution convention where with enough states to vote in favor that a new constitution for the United States of America would be written. So we, you know, they are working on bringing such a convention into fruition. Now, Let's be clear here. This is not something that is going to occur next year or the year after. This is likely somewhere between five and ten years down the road for this convention to actually uh, become a reality. However, as it said in the, in the heading, conservatives are playing the long game. And to the Democrats out there, uh, you guys need to gear up to play the long game as well if you are going to um, have any hope of, you know, at, at changing this and, and, you know, making it so that it isn't the nightmare that it looks like it could be. Now, be real. Let's be real here. Are there things in the Constitution that we need to change? Yes, we should. 
you know, there are certain things that, you know, as we've seen in, in the past couple of years, need to be codified into law rather than just as a judicial uh, opinion or a judicial ruling. And, you know, obviously the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade and Casey are, you know, proof positive of the need for that. So, you know, a, a constitutional convention doesn't necessarily mean all a bad thing. Yes, it is a mechanism for us to write a, quote, modern constitution that reflects today's reality rather than the reality of 246 years ago uh, as as our original constitution does you know for example you know the we want to talk about the 14th amendment and the protections that it offers in the second amendment and so on and so forth so you know there is benefit to having a constitutional convention where it gets scary is to who's driving it and who's going to vote. As I said, the the conservatives uh, would need 35 to 38 states in order to get their agenda to be the majority agenda for a new constitution. So we have a long game ourselves to strengthen the number of blue states in this country to uh, convert as many purple states to blue states and hold them as we can in order to make sure that, you know, one, a constitutional convention does not happen, or two, if one does, that there is at least a fighting chance for a progressive uh, agenda to be represented. So, as I said, this will come in next week's podcast. I'm going to spend this week doing my homework and I will bring you uh, what I have in the next podcast coming out. So until then, please stay safe. You know, take care of yourselves. Remember, COVID is still out there. Uh, I am appreciative and grateful for you taking time to listen to my show each and every week. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I look forward to bringing you this next important podcast in seven days. Mm-hmm.